morning we will be addressing rooting social action in Jewish values. I am the past chair of the CCAR's Committee on Peace, Justice, and Civil Rights and the past vice chair of the RAC's Commission on Social Action. I've served on the executive board for International Food Relief at Rise Against Hunger. I currently am a board member of Repairers of the Breach, a group rooted in building and supporting moral movements for social change led by Yale professor Bishop William J. Barber II. For me, and all the more so for our panelists on this plenum, action is a key part of our Jewish expression. This morning, we will address rooting parentheses social action in Jewish values. The parentheses around social is not a typo as much as it is a commentary on the way that Reformed Judaism has framed action over its 150 year history. It's not unlike what HUC's professor, Dr. Jacob Rader Marcus, Zikrono Livracha, writes about the early names of reform institutions. Neither the UAHC then, HUC, the CCAR, nor the ACC have the word Jewish in their formal name. This reflected the desire of the early reformers to fit into American religious institution without drawing attention to the difference between Judaism and the mainstream Christianity of those times. So too, social action stands both as one of the crown jewels of the reform movement as well as an area that raises brows among those who prefer Jewish expression be more internally focused. Especially in this day, fraught with raucous contention and rising anti-Semitism, there are those who feel Reform Judaism's social justice platform fuels the fires of division. How then do we reconcile what has been one of the pillars of Reform Judaism with the needs of current culture? How can we actualize our commitment to sedek, sedek, tirdov, justice, justice, shall you pursue in meaningful ways that acknowledge the breadth of voices in the Reform movement? The commandment on justice is one of only a couple of instructions in the entire Torah in its emphatic repetition that we pursue it. Sedek, sedek, tirdov, leman, tihyev, yarishta et ha'aret asher Adonai elohecha notenla. Justice, justice shall you pursue that you may thrive and occupy the land that your God is giving you. Rabbeinu Bachya interpreted this to say, according to the plain meaning, the Torah warns by repeating sedek that one may strive to be righteous both in word and in deed. Nachmanides said the reason why Moses repeated the word sedek here is to exhort not only judges to pursue righteousness, 
but also the ordinary citizen to pursue righteous in every avenue. Other commandments are to be followed in their time and place. Justice, however, we are commanded to pursue actively. Pursuit in Torah is a double-edged sword. Pursuit of justice comes on the heels by definition of those who have pursued us. Most often in Torah, pursuit refers to the foes coming after the Israelites. Pursuing justice requires rooting out the forces that pursue evil against all humanity. Yet there are times when the pursuit of justice comes up against individuals or the community's well-being. Our panelists will navigate that double-edged sword. They will address how we define action for the Jewish people and for the greater world, where the line is drawn between righteousness and self-righteousness, and the need for widening tolerance beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion to include the other whose beliefs about the path to justice diverge from the path that Reform Judaism advocates. Dr. Rachel Fish will open the discussion. Dr. Fish is the co-founder of Boundless, a think action tank, partnering with community leaders to revitalize Israel education and take bold collective action to combat Jew hatred. Dr. Fish is celebrated in her academic career with 20 years of experience in the fields of Israeli history, Zionist thought, and Middle Eastern studies. She's recognized for her teaching and oftentimes intervenes to help reclaim the Israel discourse in our nation. Rabbi David Woznika, our second speaker, has served Stephen Wise Temple in Los Angeles since 2004. In addition to his pulpit responsibilities, he created the Temple's Center for Jewish Life with an extraordinary lecture series and one of the largest Melton classes in the United States. Rabbi Woznika began his career at the 92nd Street Y where he was named founding director of the 92nd Y Bronfman Center for Jewish Life. Over an 11-year period, he created one of the most distinguished and dynamic centers of Jewish life in the world. Over the past 30 years, Rabbi Woznika has been in dialogue with nearly 100 international figures, gatherings that reach 70,000 attendees. Rabbi Dan Levin, our third speaker, serves as senior rabbi at Temple Beth El of Boca Raton, Florida. He seeks to synthesize the spiritual wisdom found in Jewish texts and tradition with contemporary lives while fostering opportunities for transformational learning, spiritual experience, and moral growth. Rabbi Levin has served on the HUC as a member of the Alumni Leadership Council and an original member of the President's Rabbinic Council. He's a partner in the Kalsman Institute for Judaism and Health, and he is the Vice Chair of the Financial Affairs Committee of the CCAR.
He's featured as a writer in URJ's 10 Minutes of Torah and a panelist on American Religious Town Hall. It is truly thrilling to be part of this conversation, which, from my understanding, seeks to challenge pre-existing frameworks and reimagine the ways in which we engage in the world as Jews. To begin, as a disclaimer, I am not a rabbi. I am not even part of the reform movement, so thank you for letting me in. Many family members are part of the reform movement. Many family members are rabbis in the reform movement. So you may be asking, who are you and what are you doing here? My name is Rachel Fish. I'm trained as a historian in the fields of Israeli history, Zionist thought, Middle Eastern studies. I have spent my career working in universities, teaching, supporting Jewish students and Jewish communal organizations to address the challenges that they face very often around increasing sentiments of marginalization, manifested in anti-Zionist rhetoric and actions, and at times clear acts of anti-Semitism. I educate and sensitize university administrators on a regular basis about Jews, Judaism, and Israel. And very often, much of the conversations that I'm engaged with are very steeped in the conversations of social justice. I can tell you from my observations within higher education that there are intellectual frameworks that have been constructed as the primary prism through which to view all the subjects of the humanities. These intellectual ideas alone are quite valuable and they are important tools to have in one's toolkit to hone critical thinking skills. However, when these tools become the primary lens through which all ideas and concepts are refracted, they impose a very specific paradigm and way of thinking. So let me sketch some of these intellectual ideas because in some ways they are connected to the conversation you're gonna hear from the other speakers. Some of you may be quite familiar with Professor Edward Said, just up the street from here professor, former professor at Columbia University. He wrote a book entitled Orientalism. In this book, Said argues that Westerners cannot understand, explain, or properly study the East, the Islamic world in particular. There is always an imposition by the Westerner to improve, to impose Western values and culture, and the truth of the Islamic world can only come from the individuals who live within and experience it. That's one idea. Another idea, postmodernism. In this case, postmodernism in the 1980s developing as a literary theory in which there is no objective truth and all facts are debatable. Narratives, stories take the place of facts or truths and become the essence of reality while the values and needs of the present and future take primacy. When applied to the discipline of history, it calls into question all facts and ascribes equal value to all narratives. Number three, the dynamics of power. Power in this case is articulated through a framework of Marxism, which promotes themes of resistance and domination. Wealth and power, historical or evolutionary success are deemed to be inherently evil, the poor 
are more moral, and it is the obligation of the intellectual to weaken the strong and to strengthen the weak. Number four, the contemporary rhetoric of post-colonialism, which emerged as part of the scholarship of philosopher Franz Fanon and his 1961 book, The Wretched of the Earth. In this book, he describes that the West is inherently destructive and dangerous, especially in its practices of colonialism, and only natives with their inherent morality understand the local. The post-colonialist lauds the indigenous while dehumanizing the West. And lastly, particularism and universalism. What we find in the university specifically is a lauding of particular communities. Women and gender communities, LGBTQ plus communities, blacks and African Americans, Hispanics, etc. These communities are encouraged to identify first and foremost with their particularisms and to leverage that particular identity for political purposes. There is, however, a clear exception to this rule, the Jews, and we will discuss why in just a moment. So all of these intellectual trends found homes within area studies in the institutions of higher education. Originally, area studies was meant to provide a multidisciplinary approach that incorporated history, sociology, economics, anthropology, literature, language, cultural studies, and political science, while focusing on a very clear particular, geography, population, the impact of immigration, diaspora communities. Unfortunately, much of area studies now serves as a platform to promote a specific advocacy agenda. Much of other area studies and other disciplines have become the study of identity politics and vehicles to promote claims associated with a particular community. And I would make the argument, Jewish studies is the exception to this rule. You may be asking yourself, what is she talking about? And what do any of these ideas have to do with the conversation that you thought you were coming to? Well, the ideas that I've outlined, I would argue, have found sustenance within the ivory towers, and yet it is not only within the ivory towers. It absolutely impacts beyond the ivory towers. What happens on campus does not stay on campus. The concepts and positions articulated by faculty have the long-term effect of impacting not only how students think and behave, but impacting mainstream politics, media, both traditional and social, and mainstream movements like social justice causes that many of us deeply care about. So how does this relate to the universalism and particularism? Well, I wanna share with you a quote from the acclaimed writer, Cynthia Ozick. If we blow into the narrow end of the shofar, we will be heard far. But if we choose to be mankind rather than Jewish and blow into the wider part, we will not be heard at all. This is what it means to be rooted in a particular. Yet that particular has impact beyond its own community to the general, to the universal. It is precisely in knowing the particular, one's own histories, traditions, culture, shared narratives, 
that allows the particular to see itself, to know itself, and to engage with the collective, even with all the differences. The collective is not a monolith. It is not uniform. There is power in identifying as part of a collective and feeling a sense of belonging to a community much bigger than oneself. This sense of belonging to the collective is innate. It is part of the familial. It is a sense of being part of a tribe. We know our societies are predicated on all types of tribal affiliations, yet the concept of tribe has become a pejorative. Of course, any identity taken to the extreme has the potential to create an exclusionary mindset, an us versus them. Yet to deny tribalism becomes increasingly difficult the more we find meaning, create attachments, build narratives, and construct systems of communal cohesion. This sense of tribalism is not unique to Jews. For all types of peoples, there are various tribal connections. But in the Jewish collective, particularly in the American experience, identifying as an ethno-religious tribe is not the dominant way of thinking. And yet, it is precisely this framing that I argue we ought to reclaim for the purpose of reshaping our generation and succeeding generations. I told you guys I was a historian, so now we have to do a quick history lesson. Part of the challenge in encouraging American Jews to embrace tribalism has to do with our own history. If you all recall, European Jews were impacted profoundly by the Enlightenment in the late 18th century, 19th century in Europe. Jews in Western Europe in particular were emancipated from ghettos, which offered the opportunity to become fuller citizens within the host societies in which they were living. The rationality of the Enlightenment, <clears throat> coupled with the rise of nationalism, appeared to many Jews as a solution to some of the most pressing Jewish questions of their day. There were several responses from the Jewish community to the events of the Enlightenment. There's the traditionalist approach, which retreated, or some may even say rejected, modernity, and deliberately remained cloistered among their own community, not embracing modern life, but rather the worlds of the 17th and 18th centuries. Acculturation was a possibility, which was an attempt to meld the modern with a refashioning of Judaism so that it remained relevant and resonant to the current moment. Sound familiar? Complete and total assimilation was an option, a casting off of tradition in order to feel fully integrated and accepted within the society. Conversion from Judaism to Christianity, which as we know, ultimately didn't result in Jews no longer being identified as Jews because the anti-Semites themselves determined that the DNA of Jews, irrespective of their conversion, was immutable and therefore could not be erased. And then there were political solutions, often revolutionary political social movements that attempted to suggest to the Jews that if you sublimate your particular and elevate the universalist, then you could fully integrate. The Enlightenment era suggested that to become a full and proper citizen meant ultimately that Jews publicly shouldn't be Jews. That should happen in the privacy of their homes. It also meant that Jews needed to think about what it, 
would require to relinquish their national community of Jews in order to fully embrace their national citizenship of the society in which they were living. This is an inherent tension. Part of the ability of the Jews to survive throughout diaspora was predicated upon its connection to the physical land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, as a distinct homeland of the Jews, a land that is sacred to our meta-historical narratives, a land that organizes how we pray, which direction we pray, and part of those prayers is a desire to return to that land. So what happens when that element is attenuated? Now let's jump from Europe to America. The Jewish community in the American context organized itself against the backdrop of a society that prioritized separation of church and state. The majority of religious groups were Christian who navigated their prior historical experience by imagining a society that did not privilege one Christian community over another. As Jews organized themselves in America, they did so along lines of religious communities. The ethnic component of the ethno-religious identity of Jews was diminished in order to integrate more easily into the ethos of the melting pot. The ideal was to embrace an American identity, prioritizing it over the national or peoplehood affiliations. Jews needed to fit themselves and their communal infrastructures within a framework that organized along religious attachment and membership. Jews attempted to do this, and the promise of equality in America was quite seductive. And so throughout the 19th century, Jews emphasized their religious rather than their ethnic identity. Jews were understood to an increasing degree by themselves to be a confessional group, a religious community, similar to other religious communities with the same protection and rights as the dominant Christian majority. You all know the history within the reform movement of the Pittsburgh platform, and then of course within the Columbus platform, and the impact that that had on the American Jewish psyche in terms of identity and understanding what it meant to be part of a collective and identify with a particular. In our own time, tribalism carries a negative connotation for many Americans, including many American Jews. To many, it suggests narrow chauvinism. But if we understand tribalism as the connection of a people sharing a single historical arc, despite different lived realities, combined with a core set of ethical and moral aspirations, then we begin to understand the merits of the idea of the tribe. The rabbis in this room can tell you much better than I that our Torah begins with a message for all humanity, and that message begins with a covenant with Noah, not a Jew. And those Noahide laws transcend any particular and are deemed to be necessary to construct a healthy society. However, we also understand that the mission that we are part of within our religious community demands us to take ownership and agency while responding and attending to the needs of the gear, the stranger. So let me close with a few final thoughts. The essayist and critic Leon Wieseltier 
gave a commencement speech at Hebrew College in 2005. And he said the following, there is no choice between particularism and universalism. Nobody comes from nowhere and nobody goes nowhere. There has never existed a perfectly particular individual or a perfectly universalist individual. Absent the reality of the universal, we cannot speak to people unlike ourselves and they cannot speak to us. And when we understand each other, it is also because of the reality of the particular, for it is in the concreteness of our lives that makes it possible for us to imagine the concreteness of other lives. If we ourselves did not suffer, we would not know how others suffer, but we suffer in our specificity. Our sympathy for others is not a feeling for the general, it is a feeling for a different particular. So the particular too is a universal condition. There's a dynamic relationship between particularism and universalism. And when that balance is most intense and, and difficult to reconcile, that is when we absolutely are achieving equilibrium. When the particular elements of the tribe are most aligned with the responsibilities to the universal, humanity. We are constantly in search of that healthy combination of the universal ethical messages of the prophets mixed with the particular laws and teachings of the rabbis. We need a paradigm shift and how we understand and grapple with particularism and universalism. We need a paradigm shift in our identity as an ethno-religious community. We need a paradigm shift in recognizing our particularisms, the differences that ought to be engaged with and celebrated and not formed into a uniform identity. We need to remember like the shofar that to be heard we must blow from the narrow end sending the clear clarion call through its larger end, which will be heard and acted upon for all humanity. Thank you. Good morning, really great to be here. Uh, Rachel, you mentioned uh, Cynthia Ozick. I'm reminded of uh, Dr. Ruth Weiss's comment on this matter, where she said that Jews particularism is there universalism? Just interesting thought that came to mind. Um, so we're now here to talk about rooting social action in Jewish values. And I want to look at two areas. The first is I want to raise the question, are we doing that? Are we rooting social action in Jewish values? And then I want to share a thought as to an additional way in which we can. But let me tell you with a story and start off with the first point. I fear the social action has become particularly political and particularly partisan. I have a friend, a very close friend, a deeply committed Jew, president of his synagogue for many years in Los Angeles, keeps a kosher home, and we were out recently and he told me that he's decided to stop attending services in his synagogue. I said, why? He said, well, I love Israel and all I hear from the pulpit are terrible things about Israel. He said, and all I hear are politics in one direction. There are no debates, no discussions. And he said to me that the rabbi, he believes, sees it as a platform primarily to share political views. He happens to be my friend, politically conservative. 
and he asked me where he should go. He said, where can a politically conservative Jew or even a moderately conservative Jew go where he or she might feel comfortable? In Los Angeles. I didn't have a great answer for him, but I know this. There are hundreds of thousands of people who feel just like them. He is certainly not the first person who's asked me that question. I have heard for many years, and this is one of the things that I embrace about our movement, that we very definitively wanted to cast a wide tent. Terms like diversity come up all the time, and I think we need to take a very serious look in the mirror to see if we're achieving those goals. If we look at our social action or our tikkun olam programs, from abortion to climate change to officially now supporting reparations in California, I ask myself the following question. Would a politically conservative Jew feel his or her views were being reflected from the pulpit or in the programs that we are offering in our congregations? Now, one can conclude that Judaism's view of the world is politically in one direction or affiliated with overwhelmingly one party, and that's fine, but then there's no need for Judaism or Torah. If that becomes our moral compass, then let the party decide what our Judaism will be. But the truth is our congregants can read the editorial pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. They can watch, a, watch ABC or CNN or CBS or NBC or listen to NPR. And if they're gonna hear virtually the same thing in their synagogue, why should they go? And they aren't. There are many knowledgeable Jewish thinkers and leaders who come to very different conclusions based on Jewish values on some of these issues. I'm not here to advocate a position, but I am here to advocate that our movement be what it aspires to be, a big tent with robust debate on vital issues facing us as Jews and as Americans. And when we talk about diversity, diversity doesn't mean only diversity of color or diversity of ethnicity or diversity of socioeconomic background. It also means diversity of thought. As a matter of fact, from my perspective, diversity of thought is much more interesting and much more important than anything else. I want to know what a person's values are far more than I care about their color, their background, or their socioeconomic status. So let's take a look at some of the issues that our movement is particularly associated with in the area of social action. Take, for example, the death penalty. Regardless of your personal positions, wouldn't it be great to have people steeped in texts who might offer differing perspective, again, based on Jewish ideals, based on Jewish texts in the public sphere? How often are our synagogues offering such things? I learned something just recently which gave me pause for thought. And I have to check this out, so that many of you may know this, so I'm not sure. But one of my teachers told me that the death penalty is the only law that is repeated in every single book of the Torah. 
I don't know what to make of that, but I should have known that. There should be robust debate on that issue. Take even abortion. There's very clear and unequivocal position that our movement has taken on abortion. We had repro Shabbat around the country in February. And the URJ website notes, it's quote, the decision to abort should be made by the individual within whose body the fetus is growing. By the way, I'm not advocating a change. But some years ago, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, and we were living here in New York, she went in for an amnio. It turns out that the technician was an Orthodox Jewish woman. And we had a discussion. And I asked her if she had an amnio before her children were born. And she explained to me that she didn't, and she told me why. And it was very much based on her Jewish perspective. Again, I am not advocating a position that we change on abortion. But again, wouldn't robust debate in our synagogues be worthwhile? I want to hear how people come to their decisions based on their Jewish perspective. In our tradition, the rabbis welcomed such debates, encouraged such debates, and even recorded such debates. Climate change, a major issue in our movement. Many reform rabbis speak about it frequently on the pulpit. They dedicated their high holiday sermons to why it poses an existential threat. There are many programs about it. And yet there are major, highly regarded scientists who acknowledge that the earth is warming, but feel that the dangers of the response to it are catastrophic. Dr. Bjorn Lamborg. Bjorn Lamborg directed the Environmental Assessment Institute in Copenhagen. He is one of the most highly respected scientists on climatology in the world. He has basically said, he acknowledges that there's a danger, but he has said that many of the measures being put into place or being proposed will have a devastating impact, particularly on poor countries. Now, I don't know if that's right or not. What I do know is we don't get to hear from people like Bjorn Longboard. They're smeared. They're called climate deniers. I don't think that's healthy. What attracted me to this movement some 35 or 40 years ago was that a reformed Jew, a serious reformed Jew, studies the matters, studies the issues, and comes to a conclusion. But I don't want political perspective to drive our conclusions, I want Judaism to drive my conclusions. So my first point on social action is to have those open, healthy discussion on important societal issues with people steeped in Torah. And my second point, social action invariably focuses on the external, on making changes in society. But the way I understand Torah, it's far more important, if you want to make a better world, to change the individual. That tikkun olam absolutely must be coupled, even more importantly,
with tikkun atzmi. That doesn't come from Waznika's opinion. This comes from my understanding of the Torah. Genesis 8, verse 21, I don't know a lot of them by heart, but this one I do. Man's inclination, or the human inclination, if you will, is towards evil from our youth. By the way, that doesn't mean we're born into eternal sin or eternal damnation. It doesn't mean we're bad. It just means our inclinations aren't so terrific. And I'm reminded of Ben Zoma's teaching, who was strong, the person who conquers their yetzer, their desires. And if you didn't think that's true, if you think people are born basically good, then the question I have to ask all of us is, why does God give us 613 mitzvot teaching us how to be good if good is so natural? I hear all the time, I heard it from pulpits all the time, I hear it from rabbis, from teachers all the time, I hear it at virtually every college graduation, follow your heart. Boy, that is emblazoned. If you don't say follow your heart at some point at a college graduation ceremony, you're missing out. Guess what? I believe Judaism absolutely does not want you to follow your heart. It seems to me the Torah is pretty clear about that. I was just noticing this morning something that we read all the time. You'll recognize these words. Don't follow your heart or your eyes in your lustful urge. By the way, that's a very nice way of putting it. It's really don't prostitute yourself. Don't follow your heart. Your heart can lead sometimes to wonderful things but it can also lead to some terrible things. If you want to make a better world, you can't just follow your heart. If your heart yearns for cheesecake, by the way, my heart always yearns for cheesecake. If your heart yearns for cheesecake, I can't have two minutes, I just got up here nine minutes ago. Uh, heart yearns for cheesecake, but you say no. Or if you're out on a business trip with a colleague, and you're both married to somebody else and you're attracted to one another, your heart may say X, but your values say Y. I have a friend who gave a speech and he talked about the Jewish law of tzedakah giving 10% of your income to the needy. At the end of the speech, a man stood up and he said, I don't like that law. A person should give out of their heart, not because of some Jewish law. So my friend posed the following scenario to him. He said, listen, Imagine two Jews, equally wealthy in every way, partners in a business firm. They had the same, same net worth. They're approached by a representative of the Cystic Fibrosis Society who tells them of the plight of children with cystic fibrosis. One of the people is so affected, he or she begins to weep and reaches into the pocket and gives the representative a dollar. The other person honestly wasn't affected but knew the Jewish law of tzedakah and gave the representative $50. Who, my friend asked the question, or did the better act? To which he answered, the, people, the person who gave a dollar because he gave it from his heart. My friends, Judaism would love for us to give 10% of our income from our hearts. It suspects, however, 
that our hearts might not always be in the mood. <laughs> Therefore, give. And if your heart catches up with you, all the better. But in the meantime, in the meantime, kids who are suffering from cystic fibrosis will be helped. Very often, it's easy to change the world, much easier to change the world than to change the self. Sometimes it's easier to march for a cause you care about, but your personal ethics may wane. The Ten Commandments, I believe, interestingly enough, are all in the singular. They're all directed to us as individuals. In the mid-1980s, there was a major movement in California to promote self-esteem. That probably doesn't surprise any of you. It came with free Brussels sprouts. It was a fantastic thing. <laughs> I was living here, and, but I was living, but it was very interesting. I was living here in New York. I grew up in California, then went back. But the jokes about California, the, the, the disgusting things that are said about, about us, every single one of them is true. But in any event, self-esteem, there was this big self-esteem movement. Self-esteem, when earned, may be meaningful. But I go back to Ben Zoma's teaching. Who is strong? The person who can overcome their desires, their evil, their inclinations. And I come to realize far more important than self-esteem is self-control. I think one of the most important things that we can tell parents about raising children is that if you care about the character of your children, if you care about their happiness, help them to develop self-control. And I think that is deeply steeped in our tradition 25 years, 35 years ago, I read an article, I was here by Dennis Prager, who wrote, Why Good Homes Don't Necessarily Produce Good Children. And he says to parents, ask your children, do I, your mother or father, what do I want most from you? That you're happy, successful, smart, or good. By the way, you should do it. Doesn't matter if your kids are five or 35. What do I, your mother, your father, what do you think I want most? And people are shocked to learn the children almost invariably say, what's most important to, to you, mom or dad, is that I'm happy. Even for whom parents, goodness is more important. That's shocking. And I think in many ways it comes from the fact that we often don't reinforce goodness nearly as much as we reinforce other things. I'm sad to say this, but I think Jewish parents often take far more pride that their kid got into an Ivy League college than their kid came out to be a mensch. That saddens me. I think it's tragic. I'd rather have a son or daughter of good character than a son or daughter with a PhD from an institution of higher education. If happiness is at the top of the list, by definition, we are raising a narcissist. If what makes you happy is to get a good grade in school, but you didn't study for the test, then you'll cheat and get the A, so you're happy. But that has nothing to do with being decent. I suspect, I say this as I get older and come to this realization, but I suspect I'm not alone. I've met a lot of smart people, like you have, a lot of financially successful people, successful like you have, a lot of academically successful people, but I have met very, very few decent people willing to fight for what is right. If we want to make a better world, then decent people who fight evil is where our focus should be. 
Rabbi Joseph Tolushkin, who had a tremendous influence on my life, has a beautiful teaching. He says, if what you care most about is that your children be good, then save your greatest praise for them when they do something good or something kind. In other words, praise them when they do good in school. Praise them when they make the, the, the sports team or become a member of the orchestra. But save your greatest praise for when they do something good or kind because then they will forever associate that with what you cared about the most. As rabbis, cantors, educators, leaders in this movement, we can offer something that the general secular world does not offer. We can show that leading a serious Jewish life can elevate our character and the character of our children. I realized something not too long ago, I should have realized it before. Yom Kippur, as we all know, is the holiest day of the Jewish year. Most holy days in other religions are focused on faith. The holiest day of our Jewish year is all about how we act. It's all about how we act. Every sin that we beat our chest, ashamnu, bagadnu, achetshachatanu, is all moral, which tells me that what God cares most about is how we treat one another. That's an extraordinary statement about our religion. Reminded of the joke about Yom Kippur, it, uh, the rabbi uh, sees that services are at 10 o'clock, so he decides to get up early and play a round of golf. The angels see the rabbi and they're, they're furious, so they turn to God and they say, God, the rabbi's playing golf, it's Yom Kippur. And the angels say, and God says, don't worry, I'll work this out. It's a par three, dog leg 250 yards to the left, Rabbi hits it, bounces through the sand trap, rolls onto the green for a hole in one. The angels are furious. They say, God, it's Yom Kippur. You help the rabbi get a hole in one? That's punishment? And God says, who's he going to tell? <laughs> Before I conclude, I just want to say it's a credit to our movement that we consider a recharge and to hearing thoughts that sometimes we may disagree with. And I genuinely feel honored to be invited here. If we're gonna make a better world, and we're gonna root it in Jewish values, it's essential to have teachers steeped in Torah, publicly sharing differing opinions on critical social issues and on moral, moral issues that we face as well. And let's also turn the focus of tikkun olam, not only to repairing the world from the outside, but from the inside. Let's repair ourselves. Let's take the God-given material, the good and the bad, and shape it into being the best human beings that we can be. That is what I believe is Judaism's message, because human nature hasn't changed since the days of creation, and because of that, it's a message as vital and as meaningful today as it ever has been. Thank you very much. It is humbling to be with so many colleagues and friends and leaders. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to share these moments with you, to learn from all of you. 
The rabbis love to play this game where they ask themselves, what's the most important verse in the Torah? The passage from Midrash Tanchuma is familiar to all of us. Rabbi Simlai said 613 mitzvot were spoken to Moses on Sinai, but David came and reduced them to 11, citing parameters of Psalm 15. Micah came and reduced them to three. God has told you what is good and what the eternal demands of you to do justly, say it with me, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Amos came and reduced them to two. Say it with me. For thus says the eternal, seek me and live. Habakkuk came and reduced them to one. The righteous person shall live by their faithfulness. A second instance can be found in the Jerusalem Talmud and Tractate Nadarim. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbi Akiva says this is the greatest principle in the Torah, but Ben-Azai says This is the record of Adam's line, when God created humanity, God made them in God's image. This is a more important principle. And these are familiar to us in the reform movement. We quote them in our Siddur as liturgy. We love them for how they distill the Torah into grand humanitarian universal themes. But there is a lesser known rendition that's found in the introduction to the Talmudic compendium Ein Yaakov. Ben Zoma says, We have found a more inclusive verse, and it says, Shema Yisrael. Benanah says, we have found an even more inclusive verse, and it is, love your neighbor as yourself. Shimon ben Pazi says, we have found an even more inclusive verse, and it is this. You shall offer one lamb in the morning, and you shall offer the other lamb at twilight. Rabbi Ploni stood up and said, the halakha is in accordance with Ben Pazi. One lamb in the morning, the other lamb at twilight. How is that verse the most inclusive one in the whole Torah? Perhaps there is a lesson to be learned from the idea that the most mundane daily Jewish acts and observances of Jewish tradition are really the portal to what drives the entire Jewish project. Growing up near Washington, D.C. in the 1980s, it was the custom that every Nifty youth group event included joining the daily vigil across from the Soviet embassy protesting the oppression of Soviet Jews. Raise your hand if you ever stood in one of those vigils. There we stood in silence for 14 minutes. Fifteen would have constituted a protest, and we had no permit for the protest. (laughs) More than 13 billion years ago, our universe began in a massive surge of energy. And as it expanded, that energy spawned the formation of billions of galaxies and trillions of stars. Some of that energy formed a particular galaxy that we call the Milky Way which itself is composed of a hundred billion stars. One of the stars in that galaxy, tucked away in one of its spiral arms, is a star we call Hashemesh, the sun. Some of that energy formed the third planet orbiting that star, the heavens and the earth. The Kabbalists knew something about that energy. They knew that divine energy that formed the entire universe, constantly passes through our world, 
refracted as if through a prism so that that light could be broken into its component parts through the spherot. Those vessels of wisdom, understanding, compassion, justice, harmony, drive, and wonder bring the light of God's presence into our lives and into our world. They are the portals through which we can begin to understand the profound mystical holiness to be found and experienced in life. Imagine, if you can, an old-fashioned switchboard. There's all these cables, and each one of us is a cable. And we can plug in to portals. And when that plug is affixed, that energy starts to flow. And similarly, when we plug ourselves into something eternal and holy, we too participate and partake of that divine energy. Martin Buber described that experience of connection as hit lahavut, a sense of kindling an inner light to be fired up. And that ecstatic spiritual energy is what we feel when we tap into something holy. And that was the energy I felt flow through me as I stood across from the Soviet embassy. And I remember feeling an energy that made my heart race, that lifted my head and my spirit like I was a part of something important. And years later, standing on the mall during the march for Soviet Jewry, I remember an even greater sense of excitement and energy. Raising our voices in protest, engaging my full self in a righteous fight for justice and freedom, it lit a fire in my soul that created an almost exultant energy. I wanted to chase that energy. It was why I spent summers in college working on Capitol Hill. It was why I chose to be a legislative assistant at the Religious Action Center when I was in rabbinical school. There is a reason Torah and tradition have championed justice from the time of Avraham and Sarai to today. It is because the pursuit and performance of justice is a portal to Dvekut, to a cleaving and unity with the Holy One. From the time when Abraham railed, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly, to Moses who admonished us, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, to the exhortations of the prophets, the deliberations of the rabbis, throughout the ages and the centuries, justice work reverberates with holiness. We are a people who has also been scarred by injustice, who have nearly drowned in the gallons of blood spilled by war, Exile, persecution, oppression, crusade, inquisition, expulsion, pogrom, and holocaust. And in this country, too, we have known the sting of anti-Semitism, of being locked out of universities, hospitals, and clubs in Boca Raton. There used to be public parks whose signs declared no blacks, Jews, or dogs allowed. Social justice work offers us a powerful experience of Hitla Havut. And in many ways, that has become the driving force for our movement. Many rabbis have staked their rabbinates on social justice work. Many congregations root their identities in the mission of tikkun olam. But I fear that we as a movement have been seduced to some degree by the allure of the holy power of justice work whereby we risk a narrowing, a tunnel vision that sees social justice as the main and in some cases the only portal of entry through which we teach our people to find Hit Lahavut. The reform movement 
has been amazingly successful in the modern age. We built a Judaism that adapted wisdom and tradition and ritual to meet the challenges of modernity, autonomy, integration, equality, freedom. But that integration came and he continues to exert a huge cost. Our assimilation and embrace of the larger culture has led us to walk away from so many components of traditional Jewish life. Hyper-individualism and what Dr. Arnold Eisen described as the rise of the sovereign self replaced the authority of Torah and tradition in the life of the modern Jew. We struggle to inspire Jews who identify as reform, even to enroll their children in religious school for a few years, for only a few hours a week, in their worst possible hours to learn anything with little reinforcement coming from the home. And so we create a thin Judaism that distills Jewish values from the law and lore of texts that we don't teach. Instead of hours learning the book of Genesis, exploring the Midrash and the commentaries, we simply teach that humanity was created B'Tselem Elohim, Zeu. We distill our tradition into a list of Jewish values that has become for us Torah Bikitsur, Kavod Briot, Tsar Balei Chaim, Bal Tashchit. And when we find a cause that stirs our attention, we apply one of those values like a post-it note in an attempt to sanctify the social justice work we feel called to perform so that we can render that work Jewish. But that Jewish connection is so thin barely rooted and uninspiring, almost to the point of meaninglessness. If we want our action to be rooted in Jewish values, then we need to broaden the aperture through which we look at how to foster a deep, thick, resonant, reformed Jewish connection. I spent my junior year at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem when I accidentally became a philosophy and religion major. Walking past a bulletin board, I saw a flyer for the Beit Midrash program. Come if you want to learn more about your Judaism, it said. I didn't know what a Beit Midrash was. And so I went that first Wednesday night and I sat with my new Chevruta and we studied one verse. Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. My Chevruta said, look at that. Look at what? <laughs> and then he started. Who was Israel? Who was Jacob? What does one need to survive, to thrive when one goes into a narrow place? We spent an hour engrossed in conversation over this one simple, profound, divine verse. And I felt my heart racing. My spirit lift. I feel it still today. I came away from that night of study captivated, energized, transformed. Before I even had a name for it, I felt that sense of heat lahavut, that flow of divine energy and excitement that I felt standing in front of the Soviet embassy. 
And there were other moments when I felt that same energy take hold of me. It came from the sway of davening and laying tefillin. It came in the resonant voices celebrating Kabbalat Shabbat in the old Kol Anishama, in the concrete bunker where the real echoes were good. It came from losing myself in Zmirot around a Shabbat table. It came from walking the slippery streets of the old city while walking to the yeshiva. It came in the lessons and conversations with my teacher, Dr. Paul Mendesflor, introducing me to Martin Buber, Franz Rosenzweig, Abraham Joshua Heschel. But I learned something else in that Beit Midrash. I learned that I loved Torah study, and I learned that I wasn't orthodox. Remember one night in the Beit Midrash, Mechavruta said, you just have to get that the Torah was written word for word, letter for letter by God. Everything hangs on that. And I remember saying to him, I believe the Torah comes from God, but I also believe it passes through a really human filter. And then I knew that the authentic commanding voice of God was the one that spoke from within me. And I rediscovered what I think I had always known. I'm a reformed Jew. Like that switchboard, a reformed, reformed Judaism guides us to engage with all the different portals in which we can plug into Jewish experience, and thus to find more ways to experience Hit Lahavut through inspiring encounters with God's presence. A recharged reformed Judaism prioritizes character development, learning how to draw from our textual and traditional resources to hone moral and ethical decision-making, and how to grapple with life's essential questions of meaning and purpose. A recharged reform movement treasures and champions the work of social justice, but renews its attention to developing rich and vibrant worship, accessible and engaging Jewish spiritual practice, in the celebration of Shabbat and holy days, in the sanctification of sacred moments in the life cycle, and in deep, rich engagement in the learning the sacred texts that continue to emerge from the inspired minds of the Jewish people. The focus of our movement should be guiding the Jewish people to discover how to draw in all the different vessels that carry God's light, and not just justice, so that we can carry that energy into our world. Rabbi Danny Schiff writes in his remarkable new book, Judaism in a Digital Age, we have remarkable challenges that lie ahead for us. Virtual realities, artificial intelligence, social media, the epidemic of loneliness, alienation, the erosion of freedom, and this seemingly inexorable rise of fracture and discord. How will we face the challenges of that new age that is upon us? When we encounter God's presence, we experience epiphanies, revelations of truths from which extend a commanding call that directs our moral judgments and choices on which we stake our lives. We learn to discern that which is holy and good from that which is profane and bad. We learn to distinguish that which is right from wrong. We learn to draw the blueprints of an ethical framework in which we can make judgments and then cultivate the gumption and compulsion to build a world from those blueprints. It is from the experience of authentic spiritual encounter from the engagement with our sacred texts and Jewish spiritual practice that an authentic Jewish social justice mission emerges. The grand universal truths that we discover from the particularities of Jewish tradition and from the consistent engagement in Jewish life, from one lamb in the morning and one in the evening. Thank you.
I want to ask each of you to share what are the types of actions, or maybe perhaps one type of action that you feel we should be engaged in both personally and for our world particularly? There's a whole library of them. I think that uh, the answer to that question is found, I think, most deeply rooted in the compulsions that rise from an individual's kishkas. And while I think David is absolutely right that we shouldn't always follow our hearts, I think we need to follow our hearts and then pass what's coming out of our hearts through the lens of Torah and tradition to figure out what it is that we need to say and do, even if it may appear futile. I think you know that the state of Florida The Heat are doing great. <laughs> but when the state legislature passed a ban on abortion before six weeks, I went to Tallahassee anyway and stood with other religious leaders and said, this isn't what our tradition teaches. You are violating my religious liberty and the religious liberty of every Jewish woman in Florida because there are halakhic moments when our tradition teaches that not only can you terminate a pregnancy, you should. And that we cannot allow the state to trample on the rights of women exercising their religious sensibilities and moral proclivities. And I think our tradition tells us that we need to act even if there is a supermajority in the state legislature that disagrees. But we do so because our tradition teaches us what to say. Not that we figure out what we want to say and figure out how we can pin it on our tradition. So uh, another question, and we have many, many. We're going to try and get to as many as we can. Can you comment on Heschel's statement it is from my particularism that my universalism arises. And I know Dr. Fish gave us the beautiful quote on the shofar that speaks also to the same uh, value. So I, I don't have anything expert to say about Heschel. I'm sure many of you do. Uh, what I would say is that the way I interpret Heschel, the way I interpret what Weaseltier was saying, what Rabbi Sachs says, Jonathan Sachs and his dignity of difference, if you haven't read that text, I, I suggest doing so, is that our job is to help build operating systems. So think about your computer. If you have an operating system, that operating system needs to be Jewishness. That's the particularism. Now, you may open a lot of windows. If you're like me, you have a lot of tabs open all the time. No matter what tab I have open, my operating system remains the same. It's my Jewishness and the lens of my Jewishness that understands each of the content that appears in those tabs. Why I say it in this way is because right now, for many young people, the operating system is not Jewishness. The operating system is climate change, women's issues, abortion rights, whatever the cause du jour may be. 
And that becomes the, the lens through which everything is refracted rather than that particularism. And it's compounded by living in a world in which the diversity of thought actually isn't encouraged. Because if you have a diverse perspective that goes against the current culture and the herd mentality, there is a personal and professional repercussion and a fear of cancellation. That's the world I'm living in with more and more young people. So my job is to help figure out, and I hope all of your jobs will be, how you build those operating systems. And the operating system should be the North Star of Jewishness, and that is the particularism through then which one can engage in thinking about all of the elements of the universal. Judaism, I believe, pushes us to be better and pushes us out of our comfort zone. How do you answer to what our tradition stands for in response to the call to be ideologically diverse? Do we have no bounds in terms of what thought that we allow or we stand for as a movement? I think that you know what I'm sort of remembering is Elu Elu Divrei Elohim Chaim. These words and those words are the words of the living God, but the law goes according to Hillel. And I think there are times that we have to make a moral judgment that says, actually, this is the way we're going. And at the same time, the way that you arrive at that individual decision, because as Reformed Jews, we believe that the locus of authority is not out there, it's within here. But that the way that we arrive at that decision comes from engaging in the machloka and entertaining. And one of the things that I get nervous about is the fear of even asking a question. Because I see in so many spaces where there is sort of a moral smugness or a a certainty or a lot of virtue signaling that if you even pose a question, you may get sort of shouted down or shamed as being uh, not quite there. And I think that's dangerous. I think we need to create safe spaces where curiosity is welcomed and in which we cultivate our own humility and curiosity to recognize that we may not have monopoly on the truth. I would just add, thank you, um, that almost all the good in the world comes from outliers. Not all outliers do good, but if you look back historically, that often the greatest good comes from people who were thought of as outliers. And when we shun them, when we shut down free speech, when it's happening not only on university campuses, it's in synagogues, it's people afraid to confront anything, then we have done the opposite of what we claim to do. I'm less interested in ideology, I'm far more interested in action, but we shut down people's ability to share their ideals. There are things beyond the pale, we probably collectively agree most of the time on them, but I am reminded of the good that so many outliers have done in this world. So as a follow-up on that, um, this individual says, I'm a Reformed Jew because our movement takes a stand on issues. When, in your opinion, is it appropriate for the movement to do so versus the individual's personal belief? Yes. I think it's vital that the movement takes stands on issues and that they articulate why they take the stand that they take. I think we have a methodology for this that has emerged over the centuries. It's called a tshuva. Tshuva. 
And when there was a Pesach Din, when there was a decision that says this is right and this is wrong and we're going to advocate for that decision, there was a whole body of literature that articulated why we believe what we believe, what sources we drew on, the way we read those sources. And I think that perhaps our advocacy for those positions might be strengthened and perhaps even generate more energy if we did a better job of explaining the real deeper sources of tradition that's guiding that action and not just sort of affixing a label to it. So this goes to the universalism and the particularism. In an era of oppression and regression, when are we guided toward universalism or particularism? When is saving lives an impairment? imperative only when those lives are Jewish? For sure not, <laughs> right? I mean, I think we have an imperative within our tradition of saving any human life, not just a Jewish human life. I do think that um, we can't at all try to juxtapose universalism and particularism. They shouldn't be seen as binaries. They need to be understood as part of an ecosystem. They are not siloed. They bleed and intersect with one another at different moments in time, and that's what creates the complexity of humanity. I think part of the challenge is that we are living in a world in which some particularisms are allowed to advocate for particular positions, and other particularisms are told not to do so. And Jews are one of those particular. And it falls into a much larger paradigm that is not about Jewishness, but often is about power and about skin color, which is very simplistic. Uh, I, I would just add one other piece around creating these spaces for this discussion and how we do this. I actually strongly disagree with using the term safe space, physically safe, of course, but I think we need brave spaces. Brave spaces to engage in challenging intellectually because the way in which these ideas emerge is to be engaged with the ideas and for them to be discussed openly and curiously and creatively. And too often, I do hear people say on a regular basis, you know, they are coming from a particular position. This is who they are. And therefore, that then determines what will follow. There's a leading academic at a university that I'm affiliated with who often enters the classroom and states, I am a feminist lesbian scholar. Okay, but what is the, exactly, I don't care. I don't care at all. I'd actually like you to teach me what you're here to teach. But that doesn't happen all the time anymore. So if I walked into a classroom and I said, I'm a Zionist, you can, I can tell you exactly what's gonna happen. <laughs> I know very well what's gonna happen. And that's not what I do because that is not the purpose of the classroom. The purpose of the classroom is to help students end their, their, their sentences with question marks, not exclamation points. So same in the synagogue, same in my house. So that's what I would like to see, and that's not about only Jews. It's Jews and. Thank you. Thank you. So if the argument that if Jewish values point toward a position or a topic of concern in the public square, that it should not be stated from the pulpit, because some Jews' points of views may be offended when those views might be shaped by what their hearts desire. Is this 
self-interest and when can the pulpit put forth the values? When is it appropriate? First of all, people choose whether or not they're to be offended. I think, you know, the universities, Rachel, your, your comment was so refreshing to me. Our universities are not producing people of depth. They are producing people of fear. Safe spaces is an unbelievable, unbelievable thing. If I hear something that I disagree with, I need to go into a place where I can get chocolate and teddy bears. Is that what we want to produce in our children? But I want children to be, to, 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 to be shielded, not from that. I want them to grow out, grow up, and, you, and when they graduate, to be strong, to be convicted, and to be willing to hear points of view that they disagree with. On the contrary today, I love the brave space example. On the contrary today, our universities in many cases have become laughing stocks. First of all, that you have to worry that you send your child to a university that they're gonna come back not only not sharing your values, but hating your values. That they're gonna come back hating Israel because all they hear and often from Jewish professors, is that Israel is a morally disfigured country. They're morally disfigured. If you don't see Israel as a moral beacon in the, in, the, in the Middle East, compared to what she is surrounded with, you are morally disfigured, period. I'm not saying Israel is a perfect country, obviously. So the issue for me is what kind of children are we producing and what kind of people are we going to produce from our pulpits? What do we want to say? I'm not, to hear something that it's offensive, I don't know what that means. Of course we'll hear things that we disagree with. They have to be put in ways that are respectful and the like. But we have to hear points of view that differ from ours where people who don't agree with us religiously or politically are challenged to rethink at times. That's all I'm suggesting. So obviously it's the way it's put, and if it's done respectfully, I find, listen, if someone can change my mind, I'm not angry with them, I'm grateful to them. If they give me an insight I never would have thought of, and ought, that's not gonna be just hearing people that I agree with. Thank you, thank you. Rabbi Levin, this one uh, came for you. Can you be more specific about the aspects of traditional Jewish life that we have walked away from because of our focus on social action, and how can we reclaim them? Uh, I don't think that we have walked away from them because of social action. I think we've walked away from them because they are unfamiliar, they don't resonate, I don't understand why I do what I do. It looks weird. It's inconvenient. I don't know how to juggle that in soccer practice. And I think that what's happened over time is that we lost the idea that Judaism is supposed to be inconvenient. And that living a Jewish life is actually a whole series of inconveniences that are designed to provoke awareness so that we are able to actually see the world as it is instead of race through it to get to the next thing. And I think that as we've acculturated into the larger cultures in which we find ourselves, we have championed the larger culture's priorities and lost sight of our own. I'll give you an example. Shabbat. I think it's in the top 10. 
<laughs> but when you think about your own communities where you live and where you serve, Shabbat is generally seen as an ancillary activity that I need to weave in with all the other things I'm doing as opposed to the spiritual grounding where I'm going to actually nourish my spirit. I'm actually going to learn what our tradition has to teach. I'm actually going to spend time apart from my devices and actually having an authentic encounter with people in my family and community. But we have prioritized basketball and ballet over Shabbat. And those tensions are real. I raised three children in suburbia too. And at the same time, if we can begin to, as a movement, teach the priority of Shabbat, how to build a vibrant Shabbat, how to create worship that compels someone to say, well, I could go to the movies, I could go to the theater, but I'd rather go to services because what's going on there is so compelling, so powerful, so nourishing and enriching, I can't imagine being anywhere else. And I think we as a movement got it right when we realized that the compulsion to go to services needs to be one that comes from in here, not because of the pressures from the outside, but when the pressures from the outside dropped away, we hadn't built anything that was compelling enough to draw people to come. And I think that's where the energies of our movement should be applied in helping to build that inner compulsion, certainly for the work of social justice and social change and the activation of our values and our principles, but also the traditional Jewish lives that put us in the Shefa, in the flow, where we can feel that enervating sense of God's presence. Thank you, thank you. So I think that this builds on that. Our leaders have always rooted tikkun olam in Jewish values, but most Reformed Jews in the pulpit or in person don't make the connection on between the Jewish value and the tikkun olam work. How do we change that, number one? And how do we build a deeper connection as we are hearing both yesterday and today between tikkun olam and what we discussed yesterday, Zionism and peoplehood? Well, first of all, it's letakein olam b'malchut shaddai. We've lost that part of the verse. So part of it is if you feel that it's God's, you know, uh, um, preparing the world under God's uh, uh, rulership, if you will, okay? So if you connect the two, it becomes a religious imperative. And I think often it's, we've lost the religious imperative. And I would even, just, just to piggyback on Dan on what you were saying, I think the, the connection, we often talk about, you know, the, the phrase that, you know, when, when Heschel was asked, you know, when he was marching, that he was praying with his feet. And I think that's a great example of tikkun olam. But I do think it's also worth remembering, I don't know what day of the week he was marching, but he was also praying probably it was a Sunday the day before in synagogue. In other words, I wouldn't, I don't want to see the two divorced. I want, and I think the role of God in this equation is absolutely essential. If you believe the Torah 
contains God's words, is God's words, however you want to feel, but that there is a imperative coming from up above and you answer to God for what you do in life. And part of what you do in life is a focus on making a better world, then they're connected. The, what, what makes us unique is that we have our own way of making a better world. Jews are at the forefront of every major movement in America. Liberalism, conservatism, socialism, Marxism, what I want is for them to return to their unique way of making a better world, Judaism. And I think that that's the religious imperative. And part of that is the Zionist experiment. This is, I, look, for me, and after those beautiful talks yesterday about Israel, and we were talking at dinner last night about this, for me, Israel is also an emotional moment. I remember the first time I ever gave a sermon on Israel, and I, I had all these facts prepared, and I closed my book my little notes, and I just said, you know, the last time Israel was a state was in the year 70 of the Common Era. Until 1948, when the modern state of Israel was created. So for 1870 years, our people hoped, died, and prayed that one day there would be a state of Israel. My dad is a Holocaust survivor. He was in Dora Book involved in Bergen-Belsen. I don't speak about it very often at all, maybe three times. This is really rare for me. At this moment, I think, had there been an Israel, I would have had a lot of relatives that I never met. All I know is, you and I are alive at the very moment, this very tiny slice of history, when Israel has been returned to the Jewish people. I can say to my, to my friends, oh, you know, next week I'm going to get on a plane to go to flying to Israel. Like it's nothing. It's not nothing. It's unbelievable that we're alive today to witness it. And you know what? All the arguments, all the discussions, all the moral ups and downs, we're lucky. What our great-grandparents would have done for us to say, I'm going to get on a plane tomorrow and fly to Israel, literally beyond their imaginations. And that was my speech on Israel. So my friends, we've opened the door to a really important discussion and topic and I want to bring us back to the first verse. I started with Sedek, Sedek, Tir, Do. Justice, justice shall you pursue, and not leave us just with the soundbite, that you may thrive and occupy the land that God is giving you. We present the first half of the verse, Sedek, Sedek, Tir, Do, and often leave out the second part. The fate of Reform Judaism, the ability of our movement to thrive here and in the land of Israel depends on our action, Sedek, Sedek, Tir Dov. If we don't act with justice and with righteousness individually and as a movement, then we will not thrive here or in the land of Israel. That's what the verse teaches us. 
Our speakers ask us to evolve, to deepen our action. They ask us to hear the entirety of the verse. And so, as we act in justice, we interweave the fate of our connection to the land of Israel. I want to thank our speakers for bravely coming before us. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS. Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut 06904. Or you can call the JBS Pledge Line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.